all good things must come to an end. And sadly, that's true for series one of 99 Problems But Work Ain't One. But we couldn't just let it fizzle out. So we've compiled our favorite nuggets of knowledge from every episode. But before we get started on the best bits from series one, I wanted to say a big thank you to anyone who's tuned in, supported the show so far, and to our 13 amazing guests who've joined us for some really insightful and fascinating conversations. Each clip is timestamped in the description with a note of the guest and episode number. So if you want to head over to any of the conversations you missed, you can. And if you want to get in touch, you'll find all the links you need in the description too. Lastly, we'll be back for a second series very soon, so make sure you've subscribed wherever you're listening. Here are the best bits from Series 1. So why don't you tell us what the sneaky fourth is, although I let the cat yeah. out. The, Go on. I mean, a lot of the stuff I've been talking about is a little bit different. It, it's and, and most people I've talked about saying, well, that makes sense. Yeah, we should be doing that. and but they don't. And one of the reasons they don't is they actually don't have a high level of credibility in the organization. So they have difficulty having a conversation saying, we need to change the way we do things. Now, and, and so therefore it is the credibility of L&D that will have a big impact on how well they're able to serve the organization effectively. And so that the fourth sneaky elephant to me is the brand and reputation, which are slightly different things, but they're correlated is the brand and reputation of L&D. And in most organizations, it's not very good. Or it's certainly, it's not that it's bad necessarily, but it doesn't help them do what they need to do. And it certainly doesn't help them promote changes in the way learning is happening and promote changes to, as you said earlier, every learning, every culture has a learning has a learning culture of the organization. So, you know, how can they start focusing on, on changing that culture? And that requires change. And the people that can generate change and trigger change best are those with good credibility. So that's yeah. one L and D needs it. Um, and, and so, so that's what the do you, sneaky elephant. And, and so what do you think, Paul? You know, someone listens to this now. What are the immediate things they can do to essentially give um, L and D a rebrand or, or to create a learning brand within their organization? Well, it's, it's, it's probably more than a brand. It's, it's more than the logo. So there's a few steps that need to be taken somewhat iteratively there. Um, one is to sit down and do a value proposition for L&D, and just like a marketing department would do for the products. What's our value proposition for product X or product Y? Uh, L&D needs to sit down and say, who's our audience? And what is our value proposition for that audience? And there might be several different audience segments. Uh, and so... And, and, they, and that's just a standard business process. There's lots of different value proposition sort of tools and models out there. So that's what they need to be doing to start with. And then once they figured that out, they can say, okay, given that and our positioning in the organization, what is our mission, vision, purpose in L&D? And how do we link them to the greater vision, mission, purpose of the organization? So in a sense, our job is to ensure people are competent to step up to the line and execute the corporate strategy, whatever that is. So that's, you know, we've got to assume that's right. That's been handed down from on high. So if that's wrong, we're all kind of in the wrong boat, but hang on. Yeah. <laughs> but let's assume that's right. So how do we as learning and development ensure that we have people competent to step up in the right kind of timeframes to deliver on that corporate and, and execute that corporate strategy? So, yeah. so that's so that's it's kind of a roundabout answer, but there's the value proposition work, 
And then you've got to do your vision, mission, purpose and stuff for L&D and self, and then work out a strategy of how we're going to deliver that. And obviously, all of that's got to be aligned with and plugged into the greater uh, things that are going on at a business level. So how would that break it down for me in terms of changing the structure of the HR? Are Are we saying, are we splitting it in a way where we've got kind of a HR person sitting in every function and is kind of tailoring the requirements to that particular part of the business. I guess that's what you try to do with the kind of a HR business partner, mm-hmm. which is quite contentious. Some people like mm-hmm. it, some people don't. But what, what does that actually look like in terms of a structure? Yeah, so in quite a few organisations, they may have come from that legacy world, as you, you've said there, Nelson, of, of having someone who is that point of contact in the business that's maybe doing the generalist work and some of the strategic work, and then all of the admin work was in within shared services. But if you automate more and more and more, which organisations are doing, and it's the right thing to do um, with that balance of human, as I said, you then elevate the role that your legacy shared service kind of tier one, type tier two resource could play, i.e. your advisors. So they can take on more activities, new services, services even maybe like health and safety for example in some organizations um it could be that they're even you know looking at owning the brand element of of recruitment within shared services i've seen that in some organizations so if they're doing that equally there's the question of with your business partners that role should continue to be strategic but therefore fewer in number how do you keep that business line of sight and connectivity and i think that's one of the challenges with the, the model of HR in a lot of organizations at the moment is you've got business partners, you've got shared services, and you've got COEs, and they may well all be doing brilliant things individually, but because they are individual teams, there is a propensity that they work in silos and you lose that end-to-end line of sight of delivering the service right. to the customer and maintaining that business relationship. So for me, actually, it's it's not about really the roles you have and the structure of them. It's how do you create the networks and the connections and conversations that promote that listening and continuous improvement um, activity. And how do you think this changes the skill requirements for people who are working within the people function? Um, you know, because if it's changing their roles and responsibilities, how is it changing what a HR person should know or have in terms of skills? Yeah, um, and this is a really hard one for me to answer because I know one of the things um, on your quickfire questions, not to preempt it necessarily, was what was the one skill? And I'm like, there isn't just one. <laughs> Um, we've talked a lot in the past about um, thinking, you know, particularly about business partners um, or people consultants, as I'd like to perhaps now re- reframe that role to um, being much more data and insight savvy. That that's still that's a given in, in my opinion. Um, actually, when you think about what really matters to the majority of people in the organisation from an experience standpoint, it's having someone who gets them, who will listen. And he'll do the right thing. Um, so that, I guess, comes down to kind of that emotional intelligence kind of um, mindset that you might have or behavior that you might have. I think there's also elements around integrity. So doing the right thing, but also saying no more, which comes back to your first question, you know, around are we trying to be all things to all people? Um, and integrity is a massive one for, for every part of the HR function, but particularly, I think, for business partners to be able yeah. to say no and, and to do that with the justification and curious thinking. Yeah. That's a really interesting one too. You know, do you need process experts or actually do you need more curious thinkers? You you had a great blog post, uh, Was, um, which was about how L&D can't do everything alone. Um, what do you mean by that when you say L&D can't do everything alone? And, and who should L&D be working with? 
Yeah, so with that, I think maybe people will um, understand where I'm coming from with this. I think there's a real generic bit in businesses where they think L&D or setting a training program or classroom program will solve any issue that a business has, whether that's from a cultural standpoint, a lack of technological know-how, anything at all. And it's very much like, right, well, you know, we'll train people up on this, like compliance is a prime example. We're going to send people something about, right, how to be security conscious at a business. This is how to do it. And people go to this session, they think, right, everyone must know now what they're doing. And, you know, that's going to be the end of it. Whereas actually that that never happens. And that L&D solution that they think is going to change the world and means that everyone now understands how to be security conscious never happens i've been doing this for 14 years and not once have i ever seen any of that work at all in my career i think realistically what it is is they can't do everything because there are many parties involved a lot of the work that we do is around behavior and culture if you're trying to change behaviors it takes buy-in from senior leadership to role model the right behaviors and that change if you want to craft particular skills you're going to need help from people you know, marketing and communication teams to help you with that. And I think LNB actually plays a far smaller part in this with the rest of the business. And it's about collaborating with the rest of the business to say, right, if we want to make this change, this is actually what we need to do. We need help from all quarters. It's not just going to be, let's push out an email that says, here's a new learning module that you need to complete. And then we do the box ticking size. It really is a business-wide effort to, sit there and go right what is the problem that we have right now and then what are the potential solutions to that and and again this may be controversial for people nine times out of ten it's nothing to do with lnd i've sat in many situations with you know stakeholders and business leaders over the last kind of 14 years where i could clearly see it's not a lnd issue but a mechanism of lnd is being used to try and solve an issue which is not that it's a far wider um, problem there and i think mean, that's that's where it falls down a lot right i mean lnd gets a bad rap for that because they're asked to have loads of problems which is just it's impossible for them because they need the rest of the business to do that and it's not a one and done event it really is a if we want to make true and powerful change it takes time and it takes lots of nudging it takes lots of effort to do that so yeah for me i'd, I'd say to those lnd professionals you know you can't do it alone. You need to be working with other areas of the business to um, to bring that on board and do it. So, you know, do as much as you can to cultivate that environment and collaboration and showcase that. A lot of organizations weren't really prepared for asynchronous working. So talk to me a bit about what are the challenges you faced by shifting to asynchronous working and what are the, the benefits you found as a result of shifting to, to asynchronous working? That's, that's a very good question. Uh, I think the main challenge is to um, let people know that it's okay to not be connected 24-7 because that's the risk when you have people from all over the world on different time zones. Basically, you can work all day long because it never stops. You would see people like online on Slack, etc. Et so you have to train your people that they do their working hours and that's fine. If they receive a message on Slack or an email, that's fine. They, this email or this message can wait the following day so it's just to make sure that people don't feel like the guilt of not answering right away so we are trying to make sure that it's clear and we want people to kind of disconnect from from work 
especially working from home. Um, it's really hard sometimes just to divide your personal life and your working life. So we are pushing a message on, on Slack and, and during meetings, etc. Please disconnect. Wait until tomorrow if you need to if you need to, to reply to someone. But luckily now we do have like great tools. We have Slack, we have Notions, um, a lot of things. Even even Law created some different time so people can jump in if they want to 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 work together on a project. But if if it's not working, they can work on another time zone, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's just being okay with the fact that not everyone can work together at the same time. You have to be okay with the idea. Right. And, and it, takes, it takes time. <laughs> and Kevin, do you still have like core working hours for everyone? Or, or, or is it quite flexible in the, in the sense that just get the work done when you do it is, is, is up to you? How, how do you manage that? Yeah, we are trying to switch that situation actually, uh, because in the past, uh, Lifestone was really proud and saying, okay, uh, we are only doing 34, 35 hours per week. That's, that's the, that's the legal amount of working hours, uh, in France, uh, which is really hard to do because 35 hours is not that much, especially in our tech world. Yeah. Um, but yes, we have now that we are everywhere in the world, we have to be more flexible, meaning that you don't have to be connected from nine to five uh if you have to i don't know like do something personal during that time that's okay as long as you finish working on your on your project so we are trying also to be more flexible on that but we really try also to not get people to work too many hours as well because i don't think it's it's great that people work too many hours uh i think it's actually the opposite of what you're trying to 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 access uh you need to make sure that your people work right just enough the enough time and 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 they are doing great on their on their projects so it's a fine balance between being flexible but also making sure that people don't like overdo stuff ultimately what hundo what we want hundo to become is is that bridge between um educators and employers um so that we can start the conversation early um with employers to say even if you're like a, a scale-up or a startup, it's like start thinking about your entry-level talent because if you want to achieve a diverse pool of talent across your whole of your business at every level, you have to start there. You know, with, with things like, you know, with Black Lives Matter, with, you know, I was talking to Josh Acapo, it's like, you know, young black people are facing the equivalent levels of unemployment as when the Brixton riots were happening. You know, this is a bad situation, you know, and actually no young people are faring well. And um, you can't mandate tick box quotas um, into businesses like it won't work. And you can't sit in a committee um, talking about diversity. It's like you have to start it from the entry level because then in three years time, you will have a you know a kind of consistent you know pool of diverse candidates coming through. Um, and that's really our sweet spot. You know, we're sort of going, work with us now. Um, we can help you build um, a comprehensive entry level talent program um, and solution that is going to achieve the diversity that you want within your business. And that's different for different businesses, you know. Yeah. So like for gaming, massive gender diversity issues, you yeah. know, uh, banking, you know, just diversity issues like at every level, you know, <laughs> so and, and it's kind of going, so there's no, you know, we're, we're really aware that there's no one size fits all, you know, but what we, what we do with employers, the first thing we do um, is we put them through um, a two-step process, um, which is the first bit is a scorecard, which is basically they submit all of their early talent collateral. And then we send that 
two young people, you know, two, two Gen Z to go. Yeah. Do you understand what this business does? Would you work there? Yeah. Do you even think you could work there? You know, and we start there. And from and from that feedback um, and those insights, we then build the employer launch pads, you know, on, on the Hundo platform. Um, and then young people and employers can start interacting, you know, because career discovery, even knowing what jobs are out there, yeah. is a barrier. On the idea of kind of displaying your true self or showing your true self, it really reminds me of a recent conversation I had with a friend who got a new job and um, he was asking me, is it okay to add your colleagues on on, on Facebook? Is, is that is that allowed? You know, that line of, um, you know, do you follow the people you work with on Instagram? Should I be adding my manager on Facebook? And you know, you might think after a year of a pandemic that we're we're far beyond that. We've got a lot more insight into each other's lives, but it's still a it's still a thing, right? Because really, what you're asking it's a manifestation of the idea of do I really want to be showing them what I'm what I'm doing outside of work, right? This this I've got a work persona, and do I want you to know anything? Else? The whole you're at the office, yeah, and you're at home. Um, I mean, I live in the Netherlands. Um, and typically the Dutch are, I mean, I'm born and bred Londoner, so I'm used to, you know, like going out with your, with your colleagues on a Friday night, um, you know, for my, uh, my bachelor party, most of my, um, people were, were either current workmates or post workmates. Right. Right. Whereas my wife, who's Dutch. Yeah. She, she's like, I, I wouldn't, couldn't think of anything worse than bringing my <laughs> colleagues to my bachelor night. Yeah. Um, and there is very stereotypically at least in Dutch is a very separated you, you leave work at five that's it I'm gone you're great friends with that work but weekends I'm gone or Friday night I'm, I'm, I'm out of here um and you, you know some things you just can't fight if you're in that culture that's just the way yeah. things are but um little things like I said if I mean I'm not a big Facebook fan so but LinkedIn 100 yeah. percent is to share your you know Open up your profile, um, you know, kind of connect your with your manager, with your colleagues, um, kind of show them what you know, who you are. Because if you're if you can't show them that, then how can you really succeed as a team? I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but seems like there is a, a, a connect there. And what do you think is the case? for still having this kind of shared physical space right because what one of the options being considered is the complete opposite extreme which is um work from anywhere but in essence what we're saying is you work from home or anywhere other than a shared physical space or office that we've uh, that the business owns or the business is, is leasing out so what do you think is the counter case for that why do you need a shared physical space so it's, it's a really, really interesting question. So we ran a survey back in September last year, which uh, surveyed over a thousand employees of mostly small, medium-sized businesses across the UK. The, my favorite stat from that survey, and there was hundreds of stats, my favorite stat was 70% of people found working from home a positive experience, but also exactly 70% of people still wanted an office of some sort. Right. And when you, when you dug in deeper, as to why that was, it was really summarized by what we are now starting to call internally at Hubble, the three C's, which are A, uh, collaboration. So whilst people can collaborate online using remote tools, and there's plenty that we've been doing for the past 12 months, 
people prefer generally to collaborate in person. Um, fundamentally, we're humans. We know that 70% of communication is nonverbal. And so really via Zoom call, you're only sometimes getting 30% of that communication. Right. And collaboration between colleagues, a lot of the time uh, is based upon uh, bonds, you know, a feeling of belonging, a feeling of having a trusted space. Um, and a lot of collaboration happens in between the workshops. So if you're running a workshop, that's kind of stimulated everyone's brains and then they all go off for lunch and they actually may have their best ideas over lunch. Yeah. And then they'll come back and then actually they'll, they'll change everything. So the three C's were really collaboration, culture and clients. And, and that's kind of what we see consistently from an, an individual perspective, a team perspective and an organization perspective is why people still want to come into physical spaces. So collaboration, either with, uh, you know, with, with the rest of your team. Second is culture. So again, we're tribal beings. We're still human. We can build culture online and remotely. Uh, but, you know, uh, if you think about online dating, there's been a lot of online dating that's been happening for the last 12 months. So people are doing like FaceTime calls and Zoom calls. But you can't really date someone until you've met them in person, right? Like that's that's fundamentally true. Yeah. And lots of people have pen pals and remote friends. But they know that that one time of year where they get together wherever they are, they always remember that as, as a memorable experience and they'll form yeah. like a real human bond because we're just, we're, we're fundamentally just animals, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so I think, I think again, from an organization, individual perspective, uh, culture of the business, I don't, I don't think that the, I don't think that requires everyone being in Monday to Friday, nine to five, but it does require having rituals um, and, and occasions where people do get together and form those bonds within the company. And the third thing is really clients. And, and again, it goes back to how do you win a client or a customer? Typically, you win them by building trust. And of course, you can build trust online via documents, Zoom calls, etc. Uh, but some people prefer to build that trust over a lunch or a drink um, or a breakfast. And, um, and we're starting to see more and more companies want to meet clients in person if they can, you know, whenever the restrictions lift. And that will be their, their first preference. Um, even though there'll probably be more remote client meetings than there ever were before in a post-COVID world, I think people will still want to meet in person if they can to kind of get that deal over the line. And there is also, I think, will be a bit of an arms race where if you're trying to secure a client deal, yeah. your competitor is taking them out for lunch and you're waiting to schedule a Zoom call. Um, your product may objectively be better. Your company may objectively be better. But that's a human being make a decision based on on human contact. You may you may you may or may not lose that client to the person who took them out for lunch. I'm not saying people as are as fickle as that. Yeah, I'm yeah. not saying people can be bought by lunch. What I'm saying is that people tend to do want to do business with people who they have a good relationship with, and you can accelerate the relationship building in person uh, versus you know doing that remotely 100 of the time. I often find when you're going from startup to scale up, like you said, the culture is is organic right and and, and often um founder led or the early employees who've been there and and it hasn't necessarily been codified but it's just you know it, it's people are just absorbing it just by being around each other in the way they work and now how do you go about codifying this and scaling culture you know what what are the challenges and how do you you know what's your approach to scaling that yeah so i guess um that is one key challenge for sure. And uh, both had mentioned me and uh, Anna Elder, the, your base, like, I, I was really lucky in the sense that 
the brand team had already been working on a rebranding project. So with that came work on uh, on the values, on reworking those, those values. So really, a few months after I joined, we had a four four sentences, like four four values, yeah. more formed. Uh, and so then what follows is, well, okay, what does that mean truly? Like how do we tie everything together to those words? And so that's the work that we're in the process we're starting now, which is okay, let's develop those behaviors. Let's well let's let's define those behaviors. Um, and but have the employees, have the teams work on these themselves. So we're going to have some focus groups um, so that we can have them live. And somebody in one of our all hands uh, who I just joined said, you know, I just I just love the culture. If, um, you know, if you could just bottle it up and <laughs> and, and sell it, then uh, you'd be so rich. Oh, yeah, was well, great. But what is it like? What what actually do we we need to yeah. know? Um, and so, so that's what we're starting now. And then once we have that, we'll then embed it in, you know, it'll be very much at the forefront. People will understand what that, what that actually truly means, what they expect to see, not in just internally, but people outside of the organization um, will look at in their interactions and, and say, okay, this is, this is what elder is about. And this is what the culture is about. So that's what, and that's really codifying that at a, at a in a, in an even more challenging time for elder because it's a we have an evolution in parallel that's going on which is really moving from a introduction agency um, to a managed service and yeah. so that, that's another topic altogether in itself yeah yeah so just generally as a business it's it's that growth and that and that that evolution of that culture. But then it's also a that, that business changing and scaling. And so right. you, you, for me, you keep the nugget of what got us there by defining what will take us forward, but yeah. acknowledging and celebrating that history. So that's a piece of work that we need to do too, is really to acknowledge and be very purposeful about what got Elder to where it is right. today and, right. and all the work and the like the history from yeah. everybody that's put that together, um, celebrating that and and then then and, and this is what will get us to where we want to be. Yeah. And and then you have clarity around okay, well, what does that mean for me? Is this is this the right journey for me or or is it not? Have I done my time here? Or and once if you have clarity, then you 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 stay or you leave the the ship, right? But at yeah. least you know. For us, the the big thing that we had to start realizing is, and 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 we have to take a needs. In the end, our client is the learner, and so we have to know them better, and we have to look at them. If you uh, candidly, almost like a marketer for Nike yeah. or for yeah. looks at how do I sell a product, and they don't say I'm going to go out and force them to buy sneakers. Because we've got these five sneakers, we do great. And even if they want a different sneaker, no, no, no. We're going to make them use these five sneakers and figure out how to want them to use the five. No one does that. No business survives in that world. And that's what we do. We, we've we taught our stakeholders to come to us and say these words. I would like five days of training on blah, blah, blah. 
Yeah. Right. And so, so two things have to change. Number one, we have to pivot on apply first, not new and more. We yeah. have to, I always, always challenge IDs that go through our course and can come to us to learn it and say, look, you have to stop. Um, you have to say, look, how do I understand the workflow first and then build for the moment of apply change and solve as best I can. And listen to this and, and, and do as minimal amount of training as a part of that deliverable. There's always training. I, yeah. I want, and, P, and we, this is where Khan and I, Nelson, sometimes are, mis, are misunderstood. We are not bashers of the classroom. Yeah. Our concern is that, and again, in our journey too, it has carried too much burden and we lead with it. We, yeah. we, we, that's why, again, I, we, 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 um, we, we got in trouble by numbering the moments. Yeah. Right. Because when, when you number something, it puts it in order. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it also gives it a priority. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So moments one and two were new and more, and really the moment one is apply. Yeah, and and uh, just on that, Bob, I really like the idea of, and I'm glad you're clarifying that around, this is not a, you know, the the death of the classroom or you're trying to get rid of the classroom. I think often, yeah, and I think often that's the misunderstanding because it's using the classroom absolutely when it's necessary, where that is the point right channel for delivering or and and you know for for getting that across and and some people learn better in the classroom right so it's well, making- you know, and that, and that's what's been so unfair to the classroom for years yeah. i i always say look the five moments doesn't bash the classroom the five moments saves the classroom how's yeah. that right and so organization we call it targeted learning not yeah. that we of course you have to give it some name right because classroom for too long had we over teach i don't know any LD professional if you put them in a room quietly and say look do we overteach in the classroom? They're like, oh yeah. You know, do we do we cover too much stuff? Yeah. Are they too long? Yep. Do we put people in in the in rooms classrooms for too? Oh yeah. Do we do cognitive overload? Yep. I mean, all the the answers to all those questions are yes. But if you're a one hit wonder, what else are you going to do, right? So yeah. so the classroom needs to be freed to do what it does best, right? And that is analysis, group experience, trial and error, coaching and mentoring. Um, um, remediation, safe failure. These are remarkable things in learning, but cramming 50,000 PowerPoints and, and, and schooling something up, just dumping all the stuff and people that they, and again, I, I know, yeah, we practice in there. I'm not saying we don't do those things. It's not that it's not engaging, but my point is that, that those are new and more designs, not apply design. So Kevin, what, what should LMD be measuring? Wow, Nelson. So <laughs> I would. <laughs> so uh, here's how I think about measurement, right? Because I'm always thinking about impact, and my belief is that impact is what you define it as, right? So I just want to let that marinate in a little bit, right? So again, impact is what you define it as. Um, if you don't define it, it's going to be very difficult to measure. So what that means for me is first you have to explicitly describe what you're trying to measure. And I believe that impact measurement falls into three categories. I believe that there is operational efficiency, there is learning effectiveness, and then there's business and performance outcomes, right? So that's how I define impact in those three ways. So with operational efficiency, I'm going to measure the extent to which the way that training and learning is uh, operating as a function is successful in what it's doing. 
Right. So when we talk about operational efficiency, it's some of those metrics, again, that I talked about earlier. Um, how many people did we train? How many hours of training do we offer? Um, what is the consumption and utilization of our training and learning resources? So that's that's that data is okay. There's nothing wrong with gathering and collecting that kind of data and doing that kind of measurement. Um, but let's keep it in context because it is measuring operational efficiency. Where organizations struggle, continue to be challenged, is not going any further than that, right? Some organizations just sit right there in the operational efficiency. And again, there's nothing wrong with measuring operational efficiency. I think it's one link in the chain of evidence that leads to impact, but we got to go further, right? So let's measure operational efficiency. And then the second one, let's measure learning effectiveness. And I describe learning effectiveness as measuring the extent to which training and learning results in incremental knowledge, right? Results in the way in which people are using what they learn to do something different or maybe even to think differently. Um, so let's measure learning effectiveness as well. And then what I like to call the third link in the chain of evidence uh, for measuring impact and results is business outcomes and performance outcomes. So that's where we continue to connect those dots to say as a result of what people learned and as a result of what people consumed and utilized, i.e. the operational metrics, and that's why they're important, um, are people performing right differently? Um, is what they learned showing up day to day on the job? Is it manifesting itself in the way in which they're executing in their job and in their role? And is that manifestation of how they are performing showing up with how they're able to impact business goals, right? So those are the things that I believe we should be measuring, those three things. We should be measuring operational efficiency, learning effectiveness, and outcomes for uh, for business goals and, and people performance. So that, that's, that's how I connect the dots. And those are the things that I think we really got to be measuring. I just wanted to touch on your point around meetings. I mean, especially now where we're talking about an era of Zoom fatigue and people are you know facing burnout from back-to-back meetings. Um, and I find that kind of talk nods to a bigger topic, which is what we're seeing right now around, do we go to the office? Do we work from home? Is it hybrid? But really, I find the bigger question is it's not about where we're working, but it's how we're working. And a big part of that is synchronous and asynchronous. And it comes to the meeting point you mentioned around, am I in a meeting to hear these status updates or could we have asynchronously um, shared that? So given you, you wrote this prior to the pandemic and all of this kind of remote work kicking off, um, what are your thoughts on that? And what are your thoughts on it now in terms of how prepared companies are for asynchronous work? And if they're not, what can they be doing to be more prepared for asynchronous work? Look, I'm a massive fan of asynchronous work. Uh, I all, you know, even before this, I have been, and I don't think companies are prepared enough. I think that they still believe that we need to be there for one person talking through 50 slides for two hours while everybody else pretends to listen, but they're actually on their email. You know, I think that's just the absolute worst waste of energy, especially if you've got people joining from different time zones, you know, some early in the morning, some late at night to what? To listen to something that could have been a podcast, you know, really, I do think that that's a massive challenge. And I think that probably more traditional companies are still struggling with that. Um, Also, you mentioned a very important point, though, which is that the culture that we've developed over the last 15 months is has been very intense and it's been in response to a crisis so we've all started to work even more 
ridiculously hard than we used to and probably taking up the edges of what used to be our commute uh, instead of taking that time back from ourselves. And so actually one of the most popular and most useful, I think, uh, chapters in the book is chapter three, which is all about taking back control of time. And essentially it's about stopping your time from being taken up in bad meetings and being used on email because a, a study showed that uh, after all of your meetings and emails, the average knowledge worker has about 44% of their time left in the working week. So essentially none of us start any work until like Wednesday afternoon, which is crazy. Yeah. You know, we we cannot allow that. And I think that's one of the most important resets and the most important habits that we need to overcome. Stop doing what has always been done just because that's the way it's always been done. You know, there's a couple of companies who've done really good changes like that. So, for example, Vodafone made uh, their meeting defaults into half an hour rather than one hour meetings. That saves in a massive amount of time. But the problem is that still might leave you with, you know, back to back 10 one, half an hour meetings. So what Channel 4 did was they banned people from putting back to back meetings. So they forced a 15 minute break between every meeting. Okay. And then they also said on Fridays, no meetings. And, and you know, so lo lots of companies are coming up with different things like that. I mean, I'm not, I think those companies are amazing for doing that. I'm not always in favor of um, only company-wide policies, though, because I think you need to, as a team, discuss what are you trying to achieve, who's on our team, and how do we best work together? You know, you've obviously been at TomTom Tom for, for a while. So yeah. how have you seen OKRs change behavior in a way it didn't when you didn't kind of have OKRs, right? What, what difference has it made? Um, especially, I guess, in, in your kind of HR teams and talent development teams, what difference has you, uh, have you seen it's made? Well, it gives us all like a North Star to work towards. And so within HR, I've seen a huge difference in just how teams work with each other and um, with that one goal of, you know, this is what we want to do for HR um, this year. This is what we're going to focus on. And it gives us a common language and understanding to measure our work. I think HR has always struggled with how to really quantify what we do. Um, and this really helps that. It helps, you know, put it down in front of everyone. And we have one thing to work towards and we agree together that this is how we're going to uh, try to achieve that. And then you can, um, you know, and we try to have cross-functional uh, OKRs as well because the teams aren't really working in a bubble. The talent development team needs to work very closely with the business partners. Um, we need to work very closely with employee relations and, you know, on topics such as wellness. Um, so it's all... Uh, it's all interrelated. So this gives us one vision as a team and one language about what we're trying to achieve. And, and taking talent development specifically, has it changed what you measure in terms of what successful talent development looks like? Um, I, I ask this because, you know, there's a bit of a transition period where sometimes we speak to organizations who are, are still uh, stuck in kind of measuring course completion uh, and, and kind of time spent learning as the sole metrics of uh, whether talent development program has been successful or not. Um, but I'd be interested to know whether you think OKRs has kind of shifted what you would now consider as a metric that shows you whether something's working or not. 
Yeah, we do. I mean, we do still have key results that uh, might measure, you know, attendance or signups for a particular workshop that we hold. But then that's not the only measurement. We try to add in, you know, um, surveys. Uh, we we do lots of surveys, but also most of our HR objectives in some way have a key result related to the um, our engagement survey. Right. So are you trying to um, increase uh, the response or, or the uh, the rate, the engagement rate on this question or on this question? So we do that. We tie that in a lot to our key results, um, the engagement. And but also there's measurements such as um, higher, uh, higher rates. Uh, um and turnover rates uh, that we also can use as measurements, but we try to much more often use that direct feedback from employees in the surveys uh, to see how well we're doing and how well they're responding to what what we're doing. Uh, I'm sure in your time, especially previously at Typeform, you've probably onboarded a, a bunch of new starters. And obviously recently you've been onboarded yourself. Um, what are your thoughts on what an optimal onboarding journey should look like for a new starter, right? Because sometimes, you know, some companies are guilty of um, throwing everything to you at, in like the kind of first week. And, and the truth is, we're not going to remember most of this stuff. So what do you think is a, kind of the traits of an optimal onboarding experience for a new starter? Yeah, um, that, so for me, what I learned uh, it, uh, helps me um, helps me to get up to speed is to know upfront what expected. Uh, so uh, how much uh, more, mostly in the leadership in the leadership role, right? You have to balance uh, building a team, learning the product, uh, learning the in and out of processes, and how teams operate. Um, so I was uh, there's something I asked early on uh, to Pablo, my manager. Uh, what I need to focus on uh, from your perspective, what to expect, not to focus, uh, I knew, but what to expect of me in uh, 30 days, in 60 days uh, and start uh, now putting a plan together, how to acquire that information and balancing, right? Because again, product knowledge, customers, uh, internal teams. Um, I've, I've been in onboardings that is, they are too um, uh, hands off and say, hey, this is a, uh, national page, good luck, uh, and <laughs> overwhelming, right? Uh, you you get, can, can get lost very quickly. And, uh, okay, there are a million pages, million documents. What do I want to prioritize? Um, and uh, what I enjoy about is uh, they they have uh, uh, the right mix of, yes, there is the notion page documentation, but they proactively set up meetings uh, with uh, each team. Uh, so in the, in, the, in the first two weeks, I had the, with, I met with all product managers. I met with a people team, with a, all departments. Uh, so I get to get, I got a chance to have a, an intro, not only meeting the person that leads that team. That's uh, always nice. I put the phrase, uh, but the learning in half an hour, forty-five minutes, uh, the main uh, topics uh, that affect the team, uh, and that helps again with learning knowledge. But at the same time, uh, uh, not feeling overwhelmed, like that's it, figure it out on your own and good luck. <laughs> and, and, and for a customer success leader, right, what do you think is the priority for you to know in, in the kind of first few months? Is it you need to know everything about the product? Is it knowing what the health of the customers are? Uh, you know, what do you think is important for you to know 
Uh, and what can you afford to learn as you go? Good question. Uh, what problem do we solve? And that uh, tackles uh, already two points, no? Uh, our product, so knowing the basic of our product, not of every single feature, how it works in perfection, no, but what problems do we solve? Our solution solve our customers. And why do customers choose us against competition, right? So how well are we solving our, no, our position, our, our position? Um, so that for me was very important from day one um, to, to, to understand uh, uh, okay, what verticals of Cosmos we serve? Uh, do they normally have one use case with us? I have two, three, or four. Uh, so again, understanding that very well, uh, it's key for me. Um, and with time, uh, Belvo is a, we are an API, is a very technical product. Uh, it will take me some time to fully understand uh, the ins and outs. Uh, it's also a fine balance as a leader. No, you're not going to be every single day asking support tickets. We have a, an amazing tech support team for that. So um, uh, the team is very, very well uh, organized and supported. Uh, but understanding enough from a business perspective, uh, what is the value we deliver and uh, what it means winning for our customers. And that's a wrap. Remember, all the details you need to get in touch or find any episodes that caught your attention can be found in the description. And don't forget to subscribe so that you'll be notified when Series 2 returns. Thanks and see you soon.